Coming up this week, Tim and Nick look to the future and discuss the prospects of a bucket load of emerging cricket. Plus, Nick sits down with Nate Hayes to talk all things USA. But first, a shout out to our friends over at Patreon. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. Up next, a load to discuss in the Emerging Game. Welcome one and all to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, coming to you through the internet and the airwaves on Sport FM in Perth. I'm your host Nick Skinner, with Daniel Beswick busy across the ditch in New Zealand for the Women's World Cup, and I'm joined by Tim Cutler over in Port Vila. Tim, how's Vanuatu? Uh, In a word, wet. Um, I think that weather pattern that we see hammering the east coast of Australia with floods up and down the coast, horrible to see. Um, I think that's also affecting us somewhat here. It was good. We got all of our women's Smash Sixes games in on the weekend, so that's a plus. I won golf. That's also excellent. <laughs> um, let's get get to the important points. But yeah, it just has that feel at the moment that the ground is is wet and it feels like you know if only light rain is still causing sort of a lot of a lot of water to move around we don't have the drainage of a of an australia or a, or a new zealand um think of just our close neighbors so the water generally tries to find the easiest way to, way to go which is not always where people want it to so a bit treacherous on some of the roads but um but otherwise it's okay we've got through a couple of cyclone scares we had one a few weeks ago but um all well here. Otherwise, Nicholas, how have you been going? Yeah, my um, backyard is basically a, <laughs> a swimming pool at this point. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's it's been kind of the same thing. Road near work's been blocked a number of times <laughs> with, with water over it because uh, apparently somehow they, they did a big new uh, road expansion and made the drainage worse. So that's uh, <laughs> that wasn't very helpful. We won't start talking about which government did that, will we? Because then we'll get off the track and we'll, our political proclivities will uh, <laughs> will be on show too much. But uh, it's, not a, it's not a politics podcast. But yeah. <laughs> no, I, look, I did see Gosford. Well, I'm not giving you... Oh, I have given you away <laughs> where you live. Like, if anyone's going to come, come stalking you. But it's all... Uh, it's all a couple of footy teams filling sandbags at Gosford the other night and uh, on the news and, and, and thought of you. I almost expected to see you in the background, but yeah, I thought crazy looking at, at Brisbane, you know, only 40 centimetres below the, the levels in 2011. That was just absolute devastation. So, Terry, I mean, you've got to wonder how many of these once in 50 year, year events that happen in uh, <laughs> within 11 years of each other can keep happening. So, mm. anyway, I guess climate changes for another podcast um genre um, well we, we, can, we did we do a, a podcast about how climate change will affect cricket um if you're interested as a listener you can scroll back through our feed and, and hear some uh much more qualified people than us uh, talking about the the scientific ramifications of, of a changing climate um but uh before we do get to the actual cricket i think we should address the situation in ukraine as a sports podcast, I mean, obviously, this is not the place to get uh, um, expert geopolitical discussion or military analysis. So, so go read some reliable sources like you know, Reuters or, or AP for that. But it, it does raise some tough questions, you know, in terms of both cricket and sport more generally. You know, sports washing, sanctions. Uh, I, I don't, you know, obviously have a whole lot to add about the actual war aside from it just being a 
profound human tragedy and just waste of life. But in terms of how it relates to sport, we've seen a number of sporting organizations give Russia the boot, athletes and teams, uh, notably FIFA and UEFA have suspended Russia from international football indefinitely, which is huge. Um, ice hockey, athletics, you know, and a number of sports and, and different organizations. Um, <laughs> it's somewhat, I don't know if convenience the right word, but Russia's um, associate membership is already suspended uh, for an ongoing conflict with a rival board. So it sort of means the ICC doesn't need to make a tough decision about this. But last year, cricket had to face a similarly thorny question about the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. And, and you know, aside from Australia cancelling that one test match, which, I mean, <laughs> the cynic might argue that Australia welching on lower-ranked teams is just business as usual. Uh, yeah, we haven't really seen much of a response from cricket. And, you know, the, the ICC board has kind of kicked the can down the road in terms of what they do about Afghanistan's full membership. So I guess I, I'd like to hear what you think about Sporting boycotts generally, and you know how it applies specifically to Afghanistan, and you know maybe Russia if we get to their associate membership. Well, uh, I'm glad that you started with a softball question, <laughs> Nick, just to just to let me kind of knock it. Just a warm up, yeah. Um, off the bat as well, I heard on the BBC driving driving home, we we're recording this uh, Thursday night that um, the Olympic Committee has also knocked Russia and Belarus out of the Paralympics too and those those athletes will be competing under the Olympic flag as as neutral athletes so you can add the IOC and the Paralympic Committee as one and the same to that list of UEFA and and, and FIFA look we've talked about Afghanistan in the past and and I think it's it's a similar kettle of fish here in you look at the individual the individual playing sport and what sport can be for communities versus the state and what the state does with sport and I don't really have an answer for you and I'm not sure how this will go in a future political career if one I need to give an answer they always seem very good at at talking around the topic only (laughs) that that I can see both sides in that sometimes you've got to make big calls to to make big change and that is in boycotts and sanctions and cancellations of memberships to to not allow the state to not even just use sport in a a sport washing sense but to show that you're illegitimate and this needs to change but on the flip side the damage that this does to to people to people's lives to people's livelihoods and there's the two senses of that in that sport is an industry that employs tens of thousands and millions around the world so it's an industry itself but it's also you know there's a soul to it and keeps people going you know what we were what we're still being told about Vanuatu is how we made people happy in the early early days of the pandemic when they got to watch live sport and in a place exotic that they'd never heard of you know watching cricket from Vanuatu you know sport has a power to bring people together but also to keep people happy and together so it's a real tough question but I have to say when I heard the news come through from FIFA and UEFA and the you know huge bodies that they are that they had taken this action I, I felt better about the world where in the past the stagnation around Afghanistan and everything that had happened there I didn't so that probably gives you the answer about how I, how I feel but it doesn't mean that I, I would feel good doing it but I think it's a, a sort of a greater good scenario there and thinking the decisions that are being made but in the meantime you've got to be thinking about how do you support those people in the sport that you that you're pulling from beneath them and I don't have the answers there but you put me on the spot here when I saw it on the, the show notes I thought oh dear this is one of those things that the more I think about it the more I get in these sort of 
this, not, not so much even a circular argument with myself, but you know, it, they're really two opposing sides to it. But I guess that my gut feeling is that the one that I'll go go with, and I think that sometimes you've got to do the right thing, and the, and this feels like the right thing. And the flip side is, are we going to do this to every country that is doing that to another country? And I think that's this is where the whataboutism come in, and I'm not trying to then fling it back to something else to get off topic here. But one thing that we would ask, like we do with anything in life and and cricket, as we have in the past few weeks, we'll be talking about certain aspects we're not happy with is consistency and that's what i'd want to see from a global body be it cricket football whatever is when you make one decision one way for one reason you do the same for another country no matter who it is so that's probably my my final thought on that nick how about yourself yeah i wrote a a piece for emerging cricket around the time that afghanistan um, you know, there was a lot of discussion around potentially uh, expelling them from the ICC or, or suspending their full membership or, or a few other things. And, and there were, I mean, there was a lot of chat about their women's program being kind of the excuse for that, which I thought was a bit hollow for the just the reason they basically have never had a women's team. Um, but yeah, as you say, consistency more broadly, you know, looking at, you know, even thinking back to the South Africa boycott, you know, the apartheid regime was was terrible. But I mean, there are a number of countries that are ICC members today uh, with you know similarly bad human rights records. Let's you know, let's not beat around the bush. Uh, and and I mean, we're not suspending all of those countries. So yeah, as you say, I think what cricket and I guess sport in general needs to do is is try and work out some kind of um, objective baseline standard for human rights. You know, if we're going to take a stand for human rights. We should come up with a, 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 a consistent standard that we're going to apply and, you know, whichever country breaks that, then they get the boot. Although maybe, you know, <laughs> if you do that, there'll be very few sports teams left uh, in, in any sport. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's definitely a tough one. Yeah. And, and just even as you're talking about that, I'm thinking, well, maybe there should be a charter they sign up to. It's like, hang on, countries have done the same thing and they're at the UN, except in certain smaller panels, it's, called, it's almost like the ICC board, <laughs> there's countries with veto power. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what the, the majority potentially think because those with the power have veto vote. So you go you're back to square one again. So yeah, the idea of have some sort of common charter from a sporting point of view, I think is, a, is, a, is an idea. And I would say the global bodies have what they, what they expect, the countries and, and the values that they're supposed to uphold. But yeah, <laughs> and then you start tiptoeing around having a having a large room with a circular table with people with red buttons and, and uh yeah so oh look it's a it's such a, a confusing time at the moment um yeah i guess here we are sort of talking about uh, various cricketing tournaments that are coming up but um you've got to think uh, to our friend cobus olivier who's stuck in kiev interviewed by various uh, i think bbc when one of the first ones in there t- uh, talking to him Alison Mitchell interviewed viewed him as well, so it's always good to see sort of mainstream coverage of emerging cricket nations. It's just too bad it's sort of something something like this that it's happening with. But he's, he made the decision to, to stay behind. He he's there growing cricket from school to school, and he's getting endorsement. He's had an endorsement from the government. Not an ICC member yet, but um, but doing his best there. So hopefully he's listening and uh, sending sending our best to you, Cobus. Yeah, um, yeah, tough time for everyone, I think, uh, in this situation. Um, to the cricket, uh, obviously this is a cricket podcast and coming up soon we do have the Cricket World Cup League 2 Tri-Series being held in the UAE. Also participating are Namibia and Oman. We're finally catching up on the Namibia-Oman match that they lost way back in <laughs> January of 2020 uh, when, when Sultan Qaboos bin Said died and, and the end of that Tri-Series was 
um, was postponed. Um, so it's slightly longer than usual Tri-Series. It runs from the 5th to the 14th of March. It'll be interesting to see uh, Namibia's squad. They've got David Visa making his debut, his his ODI debut for Namibia. Pretty expected squad, most of the same names. Gerrit Erasmus back from his finger surgery. As captain, Justin Kemp comes on board as assistant coach, continuing the uh, Titans connection with hard-hitting seam bowling all-rounders after Albie Morkel uh, has moved on from the uh, the assistant position to Pieter Brown. It's a bit hard to gauge where Namibia are at. They haven't really had much cricket since the aborted tri-series that they were hosting uh, back in November, just before Omicron uh, really took off. Uh, the other two teams, Oman and UAE, we've, we've seen a lot of over the last month or so, so they'll be uh, pretty warm, I would say. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, Oman go, you know, they've looked a bit poor in T20s, but in the ODI format, I think that's definitely their better format and, and a lot of it suits a lot of their guys better. You know, last time these three teams were playing that tri-series, UAE beat Namibia twice and bowled them out for, I think, for 94 in one of the matches, but the UAE lost against Oman while Namibia thrashed Oman. So it looks like it'll probably be another pretty even tournament and just noting this is the first in a series a long series of home matches for the UAE they've got Nepal and PNG coming up for a tri series uh, starting on the 15th of March so barely any break between this one and the next one so you know at the end of the month we'll, we'll probably have a better idea of how the the league two points tables shaping up but uh, you know how, how do you see this one Tim? Well it's weird isn't it I was thinking geez we only just saw Nam- Namibia and that was actually November mm. <laughs> so um, in some ways, I think it's probably negative. I haven't got to play international cricket together, but it's a really positive thing that um, Erasmus's finger will have had time to merge back from being a kind of a, oh, a pile of... That's terrible. I, I don't know what you'd call it, what it was of skin and bone that was sort of wrapped together. With, held together with tape, yeah. Yeah, look, a fit Erasmus is a, an entertaining cricketer to watch, so I'd be looking forward so that's some of the silkiest shots on show internationally. Visa, I'm, I'm actually really excited that he's well, he's made himself available. Mm. I, I think in the back of my mind, I was afraid that he would just be rolled out for sort of major events or he'd only make himself available. So I'm, I'm really glad to see him. Will that be his ODI? Did he play ODIs for South Africa or did he only play T20s? Yes, he played six ODIs for South Africa last in 2016. Mm. Um. But for all of our chat, and you said touched on Oman and it suiting their style of play, but for all the talk about Oman and being the oldest team at the World Cup qualifier and not being able to keep up and it getting to the perhaps the use-by date of this crop of players, you know, I think this is, even though it's a different format, I think this will be a little litmus test for me anyway to see whether they can bounce back from the disappointment of that and to continue the run that they have in this in this event which is which is really good you know UAE we know how good they're looking the, the young crop of players um, they've got coming through what a huge month is, as you said you know I don't think we'd ever see a full member going through this but for the UAE to be playing eight one day internationals between the 5th and the 21st of March that's one ODI every two days. Incredible. I know they've got a young team. And I, know, I know we're trying to squeeze games in, but if I was the UAE right now, I'd be raising a little eyebrow saying, is it okay if we uh, have a bit of a break, please? Because that's more cricket than I think that's acceptable to expect them to be playing. But 
let's see. You know, we keep talking about how young they are, but they're not all young. I know Ahmed Raza, you know, <laughs> he's running around like a teenager. He's as fit as anyone. Oh, no. I know. It's, it's the old 40, 20 rule. He looks 20. He's actually 40. No, no, he's, he's not. <laughs> he's not 40. We know he's 33. I said, uh, I sent a tweet out there saying he's the, uh, definitely the oldest and wisest 33-year-old in the world, <laughs> the world of them, the world of cricket at the moment. But yeah, so what we see out of Namibia, as you said, a couple of new faces or change faces. Good to see. Yeah, I, th- I, I think this, this will really tell us what we'll see towards the back end of the event, whether Oman can keep up that momentum. You know, again, no Ilias. We'll see the the effect that will continue to have and whether we'll see any younger players come into the squad or over the coming series will be, will be very interesting. So, no, it'll be an interesting watch. And then the tri-series after, I, I know that we'll get into that surely um, in the next show or so, but... Um, PNG being there for their first tour since their World Cup campaign. They've been on a training camp on the Gold Coast in Australia before heading off to the Middle East. So I think we all hope to see the Barramundis get off that duck egg and uh, and get their first wins. But it's going to be tough, especially against the UAE uh, and Nepal, who are bruised after not qualifying through the World Cup. Yeah, that long um, that long run for the UAE, maybe a, ch- a chance for Nepal or PNG to nab a couple of games against them, you know, maybe if they are a bit tired. Uh, PNG, yeah, geez, uh, as you said, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but they have struggled. It'll be interesting because, as you alluded to, you know, Oman have a big lead at the top of the table, but they have played more games and they've, I think they've basically finished all their home games and, and it's just away matches for them from here on out. So, yeah, what, what is a home game these days? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> you know, true. What I mean. what is, you know, they're just as likely to be played in Amman anyway so let's let's take that with a pinch of salt well Pankaj Kimji was kind of talking about this that other associates love playing at Oman because the facilities are so good so maybe not necessarily a a home ground advantage there anyway and I'm sure you know the conditions the difference between Oman and the UAE probably not that uh, noticeable especially in terms of the standard of facilities which are always good in the UAE Um, so yeah should should be interesting I think I mean, Namibia will certainly be the freshest team there, uh, but whether that means they're a bit rusty as well, uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll have to see. But on the other hand, it does mean that uh, Namibia will be warm for the real event, the Richelieu T20 series uh, in <laughs> Namibia. Um, it's a it's a fun event. It's been played uh, last couple of years. It's going to be over uh, two weekends uh, at Trusco United, which uh, we we all remember for a, an epic feed that we had there um, <laughs> at, at the pub attached to the ground, which I think is always a, a good a good move for a cricket field. Food coma. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so two weekends played from the 18th to the 20th, and then the 26th to the 27th of March. Uh, we saw the Richelieu series draft happen a couple of weeks ago. I think BA Blasting are still, they're the defending champions. They're the team to beat Gerrit Erasmus's club. A couple of interesting uh, names back for BA Blasting. Uh, Lohan Lawrence, who seems to have disappeared over the last little while. And Zhivago Hunewald, who had retired from national team duties due to a, an ongoing knee injury. Um, so potentially, you know, if he can find some fitness and, and take a few wickets, maybe he'll be there to bolster their left-arm seam stocks. Uh, the King Price Kings, Bernard Scholz, Piquet France, Michael Van Lingen, JJ Smith, so a number of big names there as well. Um, and JP Kotzer as well, coming back to play some club cricket. Um, he, I believe, is still retired from international cricket, but the fact that Numbibu has a pretty small talent pool uh, means it, it's helpful that guys like him are sticking around uh, to sort of... Uh, it just, just raises the standard for domestic cricket and allows the next kind of generation to, to test themselves. Dani van Schoor is another interesting name. He's done well in previous editions of the tournament, 
but he seems to have been leapfrogged as a leg-spinning all-rounder by uh, Yannikol Lofty-Eaton, uh, who's one of the most exciting talents in, in the country. Um, Eminem signs, probably a little reliant on Stephen Bard at the top of the order. They, they don't have that many star names. And MR24-7, which has, I think, the second-best squad behind BA Blasting. Nico Davin is another name who's returning to club cricket. Um, he was a, a one who played at the 2019 qualifiers, a hard-hitting opening batsman, and sort of went off the radar. I think he was um, working and, and basically just wasn't available. And hopefully, you know, he's back in the mix because, again, having this kind of competition at the top of the order is, is good. With Green not performing as well as we would have liked, he opened in the 2021 T20 World Cup for them and, and he he did struggle on a number of occasions. So yeah, ha- having a few more options at the top will be good for Namibia. Uh, one last minute pick from MR247 I thought was interesting, uh, a guy called Tijiposa. They picked as a wild card, uh, added at the last minute with the ascent of the other teams. Uh, he's apparently out from really rural. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he gets a game and, and potentially, I, I think he's a sort of a product of Namibia's uh, regional outreach program to, to try and um, get talent from outside Vintuk. Yeah. Nicholas, that was uh, look. The man can uh, can speak many languages, and with you getting those names out, I didn't did not want to try and. <laughs> Very impressive. Um, no, good tournament. I don't know what's best about it. Is the the fact that streamed and stream really well, or the fact that you've spent probably more than twenty four hours putting virtual <laughs> franchise teams with kit together. In Cricket 19 or 22, um, whatever it is now. And I wonder if you're going to do that again. But no, it's good to see this tournament continue. Um, and like you said, they'll uh, hopefully be in good form when they're, when they're back for it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun tournament and um, it's a good initiative to because they do have their club competition in Vintuk, which is sort of de facto the domestic league. Uh, but this is, is a way of sort of concentrating talent a bit and, and having a kind of higher, just a bit of a bridge to the national team. Yeah, I, I know that all too well when that, that domestic league is trying to do many things. You know, it's a pathway of getting people into games, but also got national players honing their skills. So you know, it's good to see this concept. And I, I think, you know, we see it in lots of places where, you know, from the the T20 Blitz in Hong Kong to what the Vanuatu Blast here was to try and create that new level where to give your high performance players an opportunity to be performing at a higher level. So I guess it's not long and I think it's again a testament to Namibia in general. They're not trying to run before they can can walk and I think that's all been evident for a couple of years and it's just been really good progress and that they're not shipping in international players which you probably could look at but I guess that will be when the, the income there is is there but to bring that better experience for the players play around them but no. It's a good tournament. Well, you mentioned the Vanuatu Blast, which I believe is not running this year, but we did recently see uh, a bit of a Vanuatu connection in an Irish board meeting, and they've uh, received a review into their uh, T20 World Cup performance as well. But at the meeting, they raised the idea of investing in hybrid pitches, which is obviously something that Vanuatu has been pioneering, and that's uh, to go with some wet weather resilience plans, um, also a good idea. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to focus on this report or, or review into their performance. Uh, basically, it doesn't really say a whole lot, as far as I can say, kind of shuffling a few roles around on the coaching side of things. But I mean, ultimately, as far as I can see it, you know, the, the report is into three matches that they played. You know, anything can happen in three games. Like they didn't play that well, but at the same time, how do you review three matches? Um, I think the problem ultimately is just their cricket in general and, and the fact that they don't have 
that many great players and um, you know it's, it's pretty hard to plan your way out of having a, a team that is lacking you know world beaters yeah I, I, and we did talk about the challenges that we see that cricket island has during the, the qualifier and uh, it's good to see them come through and a number of the players that you know are, have been touted as the next generation or are the next generation actually stood up after some of the the older players, Balburnie is is another one who is a lot younger than than he actually looks. Likewise with Sterling, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one as you as you say. If you just don't don't have the cattle, there's only so many things you can do with them. But I think a review like this should always be helpful and useful if it's used the right way and and the people doing it have have access and the ability to really get in get in deep. You know, what do you need from a high performance system? You, you need to make sure that maximum access to your best cricketers and those best cricketers are getting the best coaching and the best opportunities to play a high level of cricket as they can, but in a format that means that they're not burning out and, and it fits with life, especially as you're coming from an, an amateur into pro levels. And of course, you've got the interpros now that are some uh, first-class cricket and some semblance of professional cricket, but it needs to fit in with the lives of, of those cricketers. So it's a, it's a tough one in definitely a country or two countries, but I mean, in an area as diverse as, as Ireland itself with everything that needs to be dealt with, the provincial unions, it, etc and the two people at the top have been there a long time you know warren dutram joined what was the irish cricket union back in 2006 and richard holdsworth the performance director who was you know mentioned many times for obvious reasons because it was about the team's performance mentioned many times and this has been there a long, a long time too but yeah, that Vanuatu connection, when you say about hybrid wickets, I think that's a great idea. And I don't work for Gabba Sporting <laughs> Goods, but I really do think it's the future of our sport, really, to be able to get this right. And it's going to mean that so many more fields can host higher quality cricket facilities. But the other connection I thought you were going to say is that Jeremy Bray's name was touted as a potential director of cricket well that would be a good pick yeah in a revamped structure that had a director of cricket focused on the on the performance of those national teams and the pathways other names you know small names of uh <laughs> of irish cricket were mentioned as well like trent johnston and <laughs> you know other left-handed former captains but um yeah it was it's always interesting when you see these things come out and whether you know they got teeth and, and whether things are going to be taken on board but a couple of good things in there but I think it's all about that convey about a talent that's coming through Ireland and do we look back and think that the the lack of experience in a stronger system being the 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 ECB county system that a lot of the players had beforehand and losing that opportunity being being full members is, is that going to be the the biggest reason that we've got a, a apparent talent drain or is there more that can be done in Ireland to improve that and of course we hope that <laughs> they can because you know the heroes of the emerging cricket world you could say that they were held back perhaps when they deserve full membership maybe 10 years prior uh, and where they could have been now with that support over that time who knows but you know with some of the decisions being taken that no red ball cricket will be played in or by Ireland for at least a, another year you know we can see see where the, the, the focus is yeah so look can only hope that those plans are put in place we start seeing those good cricketers come through because I think we know the, the talent's definitely there um, I guess administratively, as you say, Warren Dutram's been in charge for you know, over 15 years now, which is, you know, that's a long time for a CEO. Is it time for a, a, a renewal at the top or would that just be change for change's sake? Um, it's sort of a bit hard to assess, I guess, Ireland's performance since getting test status because there's been a lot going on both um, external to their cricket in terms of um, <laughs> the, the world situation, but also just adjusting to being full members. And, and yes, they have more funding, but 
you know, they're now classified as overseas players rather than locals in the English domestic system, for example, and, um, you know, various other issues uh, in terms of, you know, they'd spent a decade plus focusing on basically on red ball cricket and, and you know, getting to that test goal and then, you know, readjusting since then it has been difficult. Um, and, I mean, it, <laughs> now there's no test matches for their home season um, they, they won't be playing red ball cricket at least until 2023, uh, which is, uh, yeah, depressing and, and just highlights all the problems with the, you know, the haves and the have-nots, even within the full member club of cricket. Um, that home summer that they've announced is quite interesting. They've got the Super League matches, the three ODIs against New Zealand, Afghanistan for five T20Is. Um, you know, there's that Afghanistan again, just business as usual, touring around. So that, that kind of goes back to what we were saying at the start of the show. Does Ireland play against Afghanistan more than Australia plays against England? That'd be a question. <laughs> there's something for the stats nerds out there. It'd be close. I mean... Yeah, it's, I guess it's a situation of <laughs> no one else wants to play them. So, yeah, they're just kind of stuck playing each other. Uh, they do they do have India for allegedly for two T20Is, although there's been a bit of conjecture over whether that's one or two. Um, so, I guess we'll see how that plays out. But good to see India making an effort to, to play against lower-ranked teams. And weirdly, they're playing a couple of ODIs against South Africa in Bristol. I don't know if the South Africans just couldn't be bothered getting on a you know half-hour plane to Dublin. That's a strange one. But yeah, no tests, disappointing. Zimbabwe-Bangladesh series also postponed. So yeah, real real mixed bag on that home series for Ireland this year. I was going to make a Ryanair joke there and uh, <laughs> say that they didn't want to have to fly that long and have to pay for the toilet. But yeah, no, look, I can only imagine it's a scheduling thing that they didn't have the extra day to travel. And if you can get a game like that, you take it. But you know, like you said, great that they've got... Uh, those two T20s against India and what that will mean from a, a revenue point of view, not only from the uh, actually packing the ground out, you know, where India goes, uh, Indians uh, or people of Indian extraction anyway in that in that country will generally come out to watch in droves. So that that's be great from a, a fully decked out Malahide. But then the big elephant with the big purse is the the share of the media rights back into back into India for the for the split there. So hopefully that gets them back on a well the right way from a, a financial point of view because I think they've had a, a couple of years to forget. That's all from Tim and Nick. Coming up, Nick sits down with Nate Hayes to talk USA cricket. I'm Dieter Klein. I'm Venkat Ganesan. And you're listening to Emerging Cricket Podcast. As ever, there's plenty to talk about in American cricket, and Emerging Cricket's lucky to have Nate Hayes in North Carolina keeping an eye on things. Welcome, Nate. Hey, thanks, Nick. Always great to chat with you about cricket here in the USA. Now, before we get into the administrative news, uh, you've just got back from some community cricket, bringing the game to the kids of Morrisville. Tell us about that project. Yeah, well, I just I have a um, a little program that I do at the community center across the street from my house here in Raleigh. And um, so, if anybody's listening and you have kids between the ages of seven and twelve and you want them to play indoor cricket, uh, have them come out to Abbotts Creek Community Center. But yeah, so this will be the second full year we've done this and we obviously had a long break during covid but today i got notified that we were actually starting today and uh <laughs> things don't always run smoothly but i had no idea so i had to run over immediately after work um they didn't know it was starting today either somehow it fell through the cracks they've changed leadership over there they're really good people <laughs> but it's a good it's good to live across the street from the from the community center <laughs> 
so we're slowly progressing through the uh, USA cricket election process. There still haven't been any uh, elections that have happened yet. I believe there are multiple stages on this, uh, which is partly why it's taking so long. So maybe just start giving us an overview of, of the whole process and what it involves. Sure. Well, the, the election should have taken place in December of 2020, and it is now March of 2022, and it has not happened yet. That's 15 months. It sounds like a lot more because you have 2020 versus 2022, but 15 months is definitely long enough. Um, and so a lot of this has been delayed because of, well, for, for many reasons. One of them was they wanted to, to gain more eligible voters. They dropped down from, I believe they had about 12,000 in 2018 or so, and they dropped all the way down to 700 voting eligible members. And so they wanted to bring that number up and get a better, you know, a better sample of the, of the national community. So they, they voted on whether or not to, to allow members to, to join later than the original deadline in order to vote. And they passed that themselves. And then there was a lawsuit about that, about the way that passed, about whether or not it was constitutional. According to the constitution, it needed a super majority and it according to the people, the board members filing suit, it only got a majority. So that held up a lot of things. And they then claimed last year that they were able to, because of this, because of extending the membership sign-up period, they, they claimed they were able to get about 20,000 uh, members. And then they announced, they announced their list recently, a couple weeks back, and showed 12,000 members, or roughly 12,000 members, which is still tons better than the 700 that they had. But for some reason, <laughs> uh, I don't know why they claimed for 20,000. And uh, instead they have between 11 and 12,000 total members. So right now we are waiting on for elections on three board slots. The member director, the club director, and the female players director. The female players director is running unopposed. Nadia Gruny. And um, the other two have several people contesting for those spots. The club director has four. The individual director has five. Obviously, the incumbents are running again. So right now, they've, they've got six st uh, stages of this election. The first stage was collecting the voter lists. Second stage was publishing the preliminary voter lists, uh, giving people a period of time where they could say, hey, I'm not on the list. I think I should be. And send, that, you know, send a message to the uh, election council. The third stage, which they're currently in, is they, they look at the peer-reviewed feedback and publish the final voter list after an audited review by an independent audit firm. They're currently in that phase right now. And, you know, it's interesting that they had that discrepancy between the 20,000 they claimed last year and the 12 or so thousand they claimed this year. Uh, Peter De La Pena from ESPN Crick Info, he published an article talking about some of the, you know, likening it to the Yusaka period in terms of kind of how the, it's a shambles. <laughs> that is that is where the mind goes. Yes, that definitely is. Unfortunately, we have quite a history of election shenanigans and disruptions and whatnot. And yeah, so there's 12,732 eligible members. And Peter found several discrepancies where some of the clubs weren't listed as eligible voters, but there were enough players in the list from those clubs to constitute an eligible club. And that was off by about 140 clubs, which is interesting. Uh, some of the reasons given on Facebook when this was being discussed were that maybe perhaps USA was withholding the names of underage players, of minors, of underage members, 
And that's not actually been the case I've found in, in what I've looked at. I actually had a, a friend of mine contact me. He's like, hey, I'm not, I, I registered. I'm not on the membership list, but my 17-year-old son is. So um, I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that, that explains the discrepancy there. I think maybe they just overestimated, but we, we will definitely see when they release the, the final list here. So is this delay or, you know, a very lengthy process? Is is this because a sort of an abundance of caution in that they're you know having this independent audit and whatnot to, to try and prove that they are clean and in a way it, it makes it look like they're more dodgy. Well, I, I don't know. I think that this was going to be part of the process anyways. I just think the whole entire thing was pushed back. Obviously, I think um, the peer-reviewed feedback and the final voter list being published after an audit. I believe that was going to be part of the plan anyhow it's just because everything's taken so long to get started everybody's going to be suspicious of everything and you know that's totally understandable they put themselves in a in a, in a bad situation but yeah they have missed it by 15 months which is which is uh, pretty terrible well i mean the terms that they're voting on are for two years right so, so they're, they're coming up on, on a whole term of just missing the election. So is this kind of people trying to cling on to power or just kind of a, a <laughs> I don't know, just a, an incompetent mess? It's hard to say. It looks like it's just it's just been a mess. I mean, it's hard to say if it's people trying to cling on to power or not. Uh, that's the accusation that was made when the three um, board members sued the rest of the board on behalf of the board, uh, claiming that they had violated the Constitution, which certainly looks, if you look at the literal translation of the Constitution, it certainly looks like that had been violated. However, I suppose those who don't think it was violated believe that they had the freedom to, <laughs> to change these parameters a little bit, which is what they've done. So that lawsuit was originally thrown out and it's they're appealing it right now so uh just a long slow process a lot of things waiting on this of course but it's kind of remarkable that so much cricket was able to happen in the last year with all of these things um going awry we've had national championships from the men's national championships from men's u19 women's and women's u19 for the first time ever obviously the minor league ran successfully and you know there've been there's been some national team action too in the past year so it's it's pretty remarkable that if you ask me that a lot of that happened while this while these distractions are are going on but i guess um they had plenty of time since they weren't doing elections <laughs> <laughs> well that that's kind of my next question you know has this um distraction i guess or administrative level paralysis has that actually been a hindrance to any of the on-field stuff or have they managed to kind of silo off the, the boardroom disputes and, and just run a cricket program uh, on the ground? At the end of the day, it doesn't appear to have been a hindrance. Perhaps it contributed to a lot of the last-minute decisions that have been made over the last couple of years, but I, I believe that's kind of um, how things roll anyways. Obviously, I've only been covering USA Cricket for a couple of years, um, but if if I talk to Peter Delapena and others, it's, it seems like a lot of these, a lot of decisions are kind of made on the fly. And, and we know in cricket, in international cricket in general, you know, you'll you'll hear a, a, a tour being announced three weeks before it happens. It doesn't seem that unusual. So um, I really don't know if it's held held things up on the cricketing end, on the actual cricket front, but it doesn't appear to have, honestly. That's good, I guess. Uh, it, it sort of seems like this whole 
<laughs> situation is a bit like a, a microcosm of the US in general. You know, you've got uh, disputed elections and lawsuits everywhere and just uh, people being very, very antagonistic towards each other. Uh, ha- has this affected the relationship with ACE, the, uh, the major investors into USAC in terms of the broadcast partnerships and running the minor league? Well, it's really tough to say, but but I think there there has been some butting heads about that um, behind closed doors between Ace and uh, USA Cricket, and you can imagine that one of them is an entirely private industry, and uh, you're you're trying to wait on a national governing body to kind of get their stuff together to to get make decisions, and um, you know you're a private you're a private industry trying to work towards eventually building a profit or something, so. Um, you like to make plans far ahead of time if you're in that situation. And we, we, we know that the board itself doesn't really work that way. It's like kind of like uh, hurry up and wait. It's uh, <laughs> takes a long time to make a decision on something and then all of a sudden it's there. So I definitely can imagine that that's, that's caused some grief. I know that there are some board members who aren't necessarily happy with that. There's always going to be regional alliances or allegiances, I guess you, you can say, and that always doesn't always line up with the national priorities and especially with the priorities of a private business that's a partner of the national uh, governing body. Well, and just on ACE and minor league, major league cricket, uh, you uh, recently broke the news about some uh, some interesting developments on venues and facilities. Uh, what, what's going on there on that side of things? Well, yeah, major league cricket is constantly looking for new new venues for, for obviously they're going to have a 16 fully professional franchise cricket league here, T20, starting in 2023. So they're trying to develop venues for that in the cities that they've chosen. And recently it was announced Seattle has a venue. And one of the great things I think about the way that they're doing this is um, you don't want to start off too big. <laughs> and in cricket is great because you can have these intimate venues where you can incorporate natural scenes uh, and you don't have to have a you know 20,000 plastic seats or 30,000 or 40,000 permanent seats in, in a venue for it to be nice like we, we we see what what happens in New Zealand where they'll have a small patch of permanent seats and then hills for people to watch from basically so Seattle is kind of taking that approach the design looks really nice and the great thing about that kind of a strategy is that it's expandable in the future you can always build more more seating and things like that so all the venues that they're building are kind of like built to grow with with the game in their communities and that's going to look so much better on television also because you know an empty 50,000 seat arena just looks if you have 20,000 people in a 50,000 seat arena it looks bad if you have 2,000 people in a 5,000 seat venue and you have a lot of green hills everywhere it still looks nice so uh i i love the way that this this is coming together right now the the way that they're uh, moving forward a lot of this stuff is still not set in stone a lot of what we're celebrating is uh city councils agreeing that they're they're going to do this but it's a unanimous agreement so it's a lot of real optimism real reason for optimism um, but it's going to be a long road and that's where where venues like uh, church street park come into play in the meantime filling that gap which church street park is a smaller venue they've announced it expanding uh and putting some permanent seating about 2,000 permanent seats there and that's going to be a venue initially for for major league cricket and also for usa let's hope so yeah but um but obviously we want to get the um <laughs> we want to get the the election going it's it's been kind of ugly you've got obviously you have people who are who want to run for these director positions 
who are running for these director positions, waiting for the election to happen, speaking up and saying that the people who whose terms are supposed to have expired should be stepping away. We have Atul Rai, who was a former USA Cricket uh, co-league director who split his 2018 term with co-winner Sushil Nadkarni um, due to a tie in the vote, so they agreed to split that. Atul served the first half of that and Sushil served the second half of that term, and now he's running for the club director position. He spoke up, uh, him and others, uh, and uh, so so you're giving them a chance, you're giving people the chance to possibly posture a little bit and kind of be in the right while they do it. So you don't want that to happen. You don't want it to get ugly. They're going to have three weeks after they determine who's eligible and all this. They're going to have three weeks where the uh, candidates are all going to be able to put their case forward. Yeah, and, and it's just, it doesn't look good when, when many of the people who are uh, challenging the incumbents can simply say like, well, you know, you probably shouldn't be in that position anyways right now. You know, it's, it's <laughs> like it gives them gives them kind of uh, some, some fodder right away, you know? Well, <laughs> I guess just kind of wrapping up this point about the the board disputes, looking forward, where do we go next? You know, eventually the elections will happen or, I mean, <laughs> theoretically, uh, they'll eventually happen. And then, you know, if, if there has been all this bitterness, how hard is it going to be to kind of pull together? Because, you know, guys like Sushil Nagkani, that, you know, decorated former national team player and Nadia Gruni, I know she's running unopposed, but again, uh, you know, a pretty important name in, in women's cricket in America. Right. You know, ha- having having these kind of uh, bitter disputes hanging around over like important voices in the American cricket community, is that going to kind of corrode trust in in USAC more generally? Oh, I don't see how it would how it can't. I think it would it's going to stain everybody that's involved in this uh, a little bit to anybody who's paying attention. I think the biggest thing that they're betting on is that I think they're kind of betting on the fact that not all twelve thousand of these <laughs> members are are actually paying attention. Like uh, our my own league, Triangle Cricket League, has the most members in the in of any club in the in the country. Uh, making up about nine percent or so of the of the voting members, and that's that's massive. At the same time, you can chalk up that large number to the efforts of the uh, executive committee from my own league, Triangle Cricket League, who have gone out to try their hardest to to make sure people are registered, and um, that's why those numbers are so high. Now, the members that that registered here from Triangle Cricket League, very few of them really follow what's going on at the in the national level, including the board disputes. So I think that's they've got that going in their favor that a lot of these members who have signed up don't really follow uh, what's happening, and that's a sad thing if you ask me. You know, you, you can look at the numbers on our on the articles I publish when I publish things about the the board and whatnot. They're not my most popular articles. You know, it's not like there are thousands of people rushing to read about this. And uh, <laughs> so that's that's a big shame because I think until the national community really pays attention, whether or not somebody's trying to get away with something right now, whether or not there's motives behind why this is a big mess, there could easily be motives behind why this is a big mess, and 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 it, and it would go fairly unopposed, unchallenged by the community, because most of the community, frankly, just doesn't pay attention. Well, I mean, that you could uh, make the argument that applies to politics in general. Um, I'm just, I guess, on the other hand, you know, you, you've got these, um, you know, stadium things happening and, and MLCs moving forward. And, you know, Morrisville's obviously doing very well in, in terms of integrating cricket to the community. Is it kind of an argument that 
whatever's going on with the board stuff doesn't really matter. And, and you know, if you are focused on just building stuff at the local level, you, that's going to make more of a difference anyway. Well, I think that's the attitude a lot of people should have. Think globally, act lo- locally type of thing. I think I think in many ways that's kind of how things go, is people really care about their communities. They want their communities acknowledged by the national uh, board. They want their players playing on the national team. But people care tremendously more about their local leagues than they do about anything that happens at the national level. In most communities. That said, a- as I said, most of the people in Triangle Cricket League, the largest club in the country, don't pay attention to the ins and outs of the board things. However... We have games here. If we have USA Cricket shows up here, we have a lot of people that come and watch. So um, that's a big plus. That's something that, that USA Cricket has going for them is this community. And um, I would hope that to build some positive press or to build some po- you know, some good optics, they would utilize this community especially. You know, if you're having all kinds of problems and you can show footage of thousands of people showing up to cheer on Team USA and you've got a good product on the field, it kind of makes people forget about a lot of a lot of these things. Uh, well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it on a slightly more optimistic note. Um, hopefully, the uh, the board stuff can uh, can slowly work its way out uh thanks a lot for joining us nate and keeping us posted with all the um <laughs> all the comings and goings of of uh, american cricket yeah anytime and uh it's always fun to be on the pod thanks a lot nate chat soon that's everything in the emerging game this week for more log on to emergingcricket.com but for now it's goodbye